Morning. Open up your Bibles. John chapter 10 is where we are, guys. We're going to get uh, right into it. Um, I did my graduate studies uh, in Australia, in Sydney. Uh, lots of beaches, uh, lots of surf, lots of sand, lots of sun. It's amazing. Uh, the first thing I did when I got there was buy a surfboard, and I wanted to just spend my time there doing as much surfing as possible. Uh, what I learned pretty quick uh, is this pretty cool thing where there's a million beaches in Sydney, all up the, the eastern coast of Australia, in fact. Um, but what you'll see is these massive yellow signs at some of the beaches, and they will give this like huge warning of like, don't swim in this water because there are hidden rocks that will kill you. It's like, awesome, thank you. And some of the signs are like, don't swim in this water because there are a lot of sharks around here. It's like, thank you, good to know. But when you see all these signs time and time again, when you go to the beach a whole bunch, you start to just kind of zone them out. You don't really care. You don't really pay attention to the signs anymore. And there was a time where uh, me and a few buddies were up the coast on a little camping trip, and we wanted to get an early morning surf in. Uh, So we went to the nearest beach. Good break, good wave there. Um, Big yellow sign. Didn't think much of it. Sharks, okay. Uh, I looked to my buddy, and I go, hey, you're a local. Um, Do we need to worry about this? He's like, yeah, probably. Like, <laughs> the signs are there for a reason. Um, this beach is actually called Shark Beach. That should have been another sign. Um, so he told us. Um, and then me and my one other buddy were like, okay, well, you stay in. We're going to go out for an early morning surf. Um, if you don't know sharks, which I didn't, um, they like to hang out in the morning. Uh, that's when they feed. That's also when they mate, apparently. Fun fact. Um, but me and my buddy were like, no, we really want to get out there for a surf. So we, we get out there. We don't listen to my friend's words. We don't pay attention to the sign. And we go out there. And we're out there for maybe 10, 15 minutes. And uh, a jet ski uh, with a lifeguard on it rips out there. And he's got a megaphone. And he starts yelling at us. And he says, hey, you guys got to go back in. And we're like, hey, what are you talking about? It's a beautiful morning. He's like, uh, there's been uh, two great white sightings. Two great white sharks are circling. You know, cue the jaw music, Jaws music, you know, the... That's what's going on in my head. And in that moment, you start to think terrible, crazy things that I never thought I was capable of thinking, right? Like, I think I'm a pretty decent human being. But I start to think to myself, like, I don't need to outswim these sharks. I just have to outswim Cody, right? Maybe I should give him a little nudge, give him a little kick, give him a little help. You know, he knows Jesus. He's fine. Right? And so we start, I'm panicking a little bit, and we start to swim into shore, and Cody didn't make it. I'm just kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> little shark attack joke for you this morning. We both made it in to the shore. But then I'm like, I'm rattled, right? And I go to my friend that I talked to before we went out in the water, and I'm like, dude, there were sharks out there. And he's like, yeah, I told you. And I showed you a sign, and you ignored it because you wanted to go surfing. And in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to be confronted by a group of Jewish people, Jewish leaders, who are going to surround him and corner him and say, Jesus, tell us who you are. And Jesus is going to look him in the face and say, I already told you, and I already showed you by the mighty works that I did. I told you with my words, and I showed you with my signs clearly who I am, but still you won't believe. And it confronts all of us with this question. The most important question, the ultimate question that faces every single one of us is, will we take Jesus at his word? And will we take him at his works? Will we listen to who he said he is? Will we pay attention to the signs 
and who he showed himself and proved himself to be. Because our response to who Jesus said he is and what he did changes everything. It changes our life here on earth and it changes our eternity. And so we're all confronted with that question. So this passage is going to look at that question this morning. Who did Jesus say he is? Who did he prove himself to be? And we're just going to walk through it verse by verse. It's a little bit of a complicated conversation that Jesus has with them. So we're just going to go verse by verse through it, see what kind of truth God wants to speak to our hearts this morning. Cool? All right, let's read it together, starting at verse 22. Chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. So what's the setting? The Feast of Dedication. What was that? So in between the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, or Malachi if you're Italian, and the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, there's about a 400-year period, right, where tons of things happen. And something really important that happened was uh, there was a Greek ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he hated the Jewish religion, and he actually wanted to snuff it out. He wanted to stop the worship of the one true God, Yahweh. He wanted to destroy temple worship. And so what he did was he oppressed the Jewish people. Uh, He slaughtered thousands of them. And he overtook the temple in Jerusalem, which for them was a huge deal. The, The temple in Jerusalem, as you might know, was the center of worship. It was considered the place where the presence of God dwelt, right? So if you wanted to go and be in the presence of God and worship God, you would go to the temple. And so Antiochus Epiphanes, he overtakes the temple And he destroys, he desecrates the altar of sacrifice to Yahweh, and he replaces it with an altar of sacrifice to Zeus, right? Because he wants the Jewish people to stop worshiping the one true God and worship this pantheon of Greek gods, one of which was Zeus. And he changed all the rules. He he outlawed circumcision, which was a very important symbol for the Jewish people. It was now illegal to circumcise, right? And he actually forced uh, the Jewish rabbis and the Jewish people to eat pork, Right, which for us, that doesn't really make sense why that's torture. It's like, eat the bacon, eat it, all of it. We're like, okay, if I have to. But for them, it was a huge deal, right? Because they had their food laws, their, their cleanliness laws. Pork was considered unclean. So Antiochus Epiphanes, he just totally desecrated the temple, overtook the temple, tried to smash out the Jewish religion, the worship of the one true God. But then there was an uprising, a revolt, uh, led by a guy named Judas Maccabeus. You might have heard of the Maccabees, and that was his group of people who revolted against Antiochus Epiphanes uh, with war, bloody battles. It was, it was crazy. It was epic. Lots of people died, um, but he led this revolt, and they overtook and retook the temple in Jerusalem, and they restored the temple, and they restored the altar of sacrifice from the God of Zeus back to the one true God of the universe, Yahweh. And then it was, uh, it was put in place that every single year in December, starting on December 25th, for eight days, the Jewish people would celebrate every year the festival or the feast of dedication or rededication of the temple. And it was to symbolize and to celebrate that the temple is renewed again. The presence of God, the presence of Yahweh is back in the temple again. We can go there, we can do sacrifice, we can do ritual purification, we can go and worship and be in the presence of God again. And we now know that festival as Hanukkah, right? Or the festival of lights. And the word Hanukkah in Hebrew means renewal. They were celebrating the renewal of the presence of God back in the temple and the renewal of the Jewish religion. So that's where we find ourselves at the feast of dedication. In verse 23, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. 
So they're celebrating the renewal and rededication of the temple. Jesus is walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. That was this outside, um, partially covered area with a big roof and big walls that would shelter people from the heat of the sun in the summer and the cold and the wind in the winter. So it's wintertime, and Jesus is walking in the colonnade of Solomon. And then what do we see? Verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So they corner Jesus. Thank you, Carlos. Might need those. They corner Jesus and they say, Jesus, tell us plainly. Okay, no more stories, no more parables, no more sayings that we don't understand. Just tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Right, because the Jewish people, they were awaiting a Messiah. Christ means Messiah or Savior. It was the one that they were waiting for in their scriptures who would come and fulfill all the prophets of the Old Testament. And uh, the, the Christ, the Savior, they believed was going to come and he was going to be this military and political leader who would actually overthrow the Roman rule that was suppressing them once and for all. And so they have this preconceived notion about who the Christ, who the Savior, the Messiah was supposed to be. And they're saying, Jesus, tell us plainly, are you that Savior? Are you that Messiah? Are you that Christ? Right? And then we get this this question. This is the question that faces every single one of us, right? Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the Savior? Are you the Messiah? Right? And people people say a lot lot of the times now that, that the world is so, our culture is so closed off to Jesus, so closed off to the idea of God, and sometimes that might be the case, but I actually, in my experience, I don't think that that is often the case. So many of the people that I talk to, so many of my close friends, they are asking this question. They're open to the idea of God. They actually want there to be a God because they look around at the world, especially right now, in all the turmoil and the chaos, and they go, there has to be some order. There has to be a God. There has to be someone who created all of this. Right? They look at the complexity of, of human life and they go, there has to be a designer, a creator. I want to believe in a God. But is that God Jesus? Right? And the Jews had this preconceived notion that Jesus would be this military political figure who would come in and just completely overthrow the Roman rule over them. And this is Jesus' answer. In verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So Jesus says, I told you, I've already told you, and you don't believe. Right? And so this is the singular thing that sets Christianity as a faith apart from every other worldview, every other faith system is this claim that Jesus is not only a good teacher, he's not only a prophet, he's not only a moral figure who did some good things, but he's actually God in the flesh who came down to his creation. Right? And every other faith has an idea about who Jesus is, but it's not that. Right? So if you talk to a Mormon, they will say that Jesus was a man who at some point became a god among many other gods, And also that he was a polygamist and had many wives and was the half-brother of Lucifer, right? Um, And then if you talk to a Muslim, somebody who's of the Islam uh, faith, they will say that Jesus was a prophet, but that he was an inferior prophet to Muhammad, right? If you talk to uh, New Age believers who practice um, New Age belief like crystals and palm reading and tarot cards and things like that, they will say that Jesus is a state of consciousness that you can achieve in your brain with a little bit of psychedelic help probably. Right? That's who they say Jesus is. But 
the, the, the central claim of Christianity is that Jesus was not a good teacher, right? Think about the, good, the best teacher that you've ever had in your life, right? Think about the top Harvard professor, right? If the top professor at Harvard stood up and said, I want you guys to eat my flesh and drink my blood, how long is that professor going to have a job, right? The point is Jesus was not just a good teacher. He never claimed to just be a good teacher, as C.S. Lewis famously said, we, we have to either take him as Lord and submit our lives to him or dismiss him as a liar or a lunatic, right? And so the, the, the whole of Christianity centers on this belief that Jesus is not just a good teacher, not a prophet. He is God. But the question remains, did Jesus ever actually claim to be God, right? And if you talk to a Mormon or you talk to people of many other faiths, they will actually point out that Jesus never said the words, I'm God. And that's actually true. Jesus never said the words, I'm God. But there's actually a really important reason for that. Right? It's because in the context, in the Eastern world that Jesus lived in at the time, the, the prolific idea in the culture was that all of us are in some way part of God. Right? We are either little gods, we are uh, one with God, we are a manifestation of God. This is the Greek belief. Right? So if Jesus entered that culture and he just said, hey guys, I'm God, they would have been like, yeah, cool, me too. Let's go get a bagel. Like, what's the big deal, right? Like, it wouldn't have made any impact. But the the reality is that Jesus went into this culture and he did claim to be God in the exact specific way that the people needed to hear it, that they would have actually received it as him saying that he's God. So our first point, just in passing today, to point out is that Jesus' words claim that he is God. And we're just going to look really quickly at, at why that is the case. So why do we, if Jesus never said, I'm God, why do we as Christians hold that that actually was his claim? Let's look at John uh, chapter 8, verse 58 and 59. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Right. So look, at, look closely at that statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is claiming pre-existence, right? So the person of Abraham was born, what, hundreds of years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And Jesus is saying to these Jewish people, before Abraham was, I am. He is making this huge claim that before he was born in Bethlehem, that's not when he came into existence. He actually pre-existed. He is eternally existent. He's claiming that he is the eternal God, beginning and end, alpha and omega. He always was and he always will be. And then he makes this, this big statement, I am, that we've looked at several times, right? That he says several times throughout John, I am. And it was this covenant name reserved only for Yahweh, only for the one true God of the universe. Jesus claims it for himself. And it was clear that that's how the people heard it because, look, they picked up stones to throw at him, right? Because Jesus claimed preexistence and he claimed that he is I am. He is the presence of God with us, right? One more time in John chapter 5, Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Right? This is what Jesus did. His claim was never that he was anything less than God. He said, my father is working till now, and I am working. And it's so clear by their reaction that the Jews received this, as he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
right? And that was blasphemy in that time because they were monotheistic. There was only one God that they worshipped. Only God could receive worship, right? And Jesus made all of these claims throughout uh, his time that would have said specifically to them, I am the God of Israel. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that you worship, the God of your scriptures, the God of the Old Testament. I am that God. And several times Jesus is confronted about it and given a chance to recant and say, take it back, and he never does, right? Jesus does things like uh, he teaches the disciples how to pray to him, right? You don't teach people how to pray to you if you're not God, right? Jesus did things like he, um, yeah, he taught people how to pray to him, but he also received worship from people and told people to worship him. If you're not God, you don't encourage people to worship you. So it was so clear in the context that Jesus, by his words, did claim that he was God, But the problem is the reason that these Jewish people who have confronted him can't see it and can't believe it is this. Verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Right? So it's this problem where they have this preconceived notion about who the Messiah, who the Savior is supposed to be. And Jesus doesn't fit neatly into that box. Jesus is saying, you're not one of my sheep. I don't fit into your God box, into your Savior box that you've already made for me. And this is what we do, right? This is what so many of us do, right? We want to believe in a God. We want to believe in a Jesus. We want to believe in a Savior, but we already have these preconceptions about who we want God to be, right? And we say, I'll believe in God if he'll be the kind of God I want him to be, right? If he'll do the things that I want him to do, right? I've had that exact conversation with somebody just the other week, just a week ago in my living room where he said, man, I want to believe what you believe. I want to believe that Jesus is God and I would if he would just show up here in this living room and bless my business, right? I'm struggling, right? If Jesus would just show up and give me a spouse because I'm lonely, then I'll believe in him. If Jesus would just do this, if Jesus would just do this, I would believe in him. And the reality is that we create these boxes that we want Jesus to fit in. But if he is God, Jesus is saying to these people and to us, I am God. I've told you that I'm God. I'm God. And if I am God, you don't get to decide who I am. Right? You think you know what you want. You think you know what you need. But you don't. The the thing that you think you want and think that you need is actually different than what you need. Right? Because so often we want God to come in. We want Jesus to come in and deliver us. Right? We want him to provide this thing. We want him to bless our business. We want him to make our life better. We want him to bless our marriage and do this and do this and do this and do this and deliver us. But the reality is that Jesus doesn't always do that. Sometimes instead of deliverance, his answer to us is discipleship. Right? That's why he says he comes back to the sheep analogy that we looked at last week. Right? Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So Jesus is saying, I know, guys, I know who you want me to be who you think I need to be. And you're asking me, are you that Christ? And he's saying, no, I'm not the Christ that you want me to be. I'm not the savior you want me to be, but I am the savior that you need, right? It's a sheep to a shepherd. This is what I'm calling you into. This is what I want to welcome you into, right? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I want to welcome you and invite you and bring you into this relationship 
where you actually commit your life to me and you follow me and you model your life after me and I'm going to lead you into life. I want to disciple you. I want to change you and transform you from the inside out. Right? You want me to be this Jesus who just drops all these blessings on you, but what I want to do is actually come intimately into your life and reshape you, change your desires, change your heart, change your mind from the inside out and make you a new creation. And just look at this beautiful promise. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. I give them eternal life. This is Jesus' promise to us, guys, that everyone who is of Christ, everyone who believes in Jesus, puts their faith in Jesus, enters into this relationship with the living God through Jesus, I will give them eternal life. And the reality in our world, in our lives, is that sometimes the answer is not healing. Right? We pray, we seek God desperately, we ask him for healing. And sometimes the answer is no. Right? We ask him for something. God, can you give me this thing? I need this thing. And sometimes the answer is no. And we don't know why. And it hurts. Right? And we might never know why in this life, but the reality is he is giving us eternal life that though we perish, we will never die. Though every single one of us dies, we don't have to fear death. Right? C.S. Lewis said again, life with God is not immunity from difficulties, but peace in the midst of difficulties. Not immunity from difficulties, peace in the midst of difficulties. This is what Jesus offers us as the good shepherd. He's not just going to give us everything that we want. He's going to give us everything that we need. And sometimes literally all we have when everything else is ripped away from us, all we have is Jesus and his promise to us is that that is enough. Right? It's Psalm 23 all over again, right? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You set for me a table in the presence of my enemies. Right? Even though darkness and death and pain and chaos are surrounding me, I have peace in my heart, in my soul, in my mind, because I have Jesus. Right? And just look at this beautiful promise. Second half of verse 28, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Jesus is saying me and God, we are one. It is my hands wrapped around you and it is God's hands, the father's hands wrapped around my hands that are wrapped around you. Look at that statement. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Right, sometimes we think that when we're going through it, when we're struggling in our faith, that it's up to us and our strength and our faith to hold on to God, right? I just got to hold on. I just got to hold on. This is tough. I'm struggling right now. I just got to hold on. But Jesus is saying no, because inevitably, eventually, things are going to get so hard and they're going to get so dark that you're not actually able to hold on. And in that moment, it is going to be my hands holding on to you. Right? Sometimes when we're going through it, man, when we're giving into temptation, when we're wandering far from God, when we're struggling, right? when there's a diagnosis, right? when we pray and things don't get better, right? there comes a point where we just feel like we cannot hold on any longer. And Jesus is saying, that's okay, because I'm still holding on to you. Right? Sometimes we think we can sin so much, we can fall so much into temptation in a season, a valley, a dark stage, that we've pushed God so far away and he's saying, no, I'm holding on to you. I'm going to bring you back. 
right? It is his hands holding on to us, not us holding on to God. That is a beautiful thing. Right? Last year, um, I lost my, my grandfather, who was just a really important person in my life. He was um, just a pillar of faith in my family. Um, he taught me how to pray. He taught me how to read my Bible. He taught me what it means practically to, to love people like Jesus, love people, to be generous. He was just the most incredible man. But he, uh, he got advanced Alzheimer's, and we just we watched this process right, of his mind start to slip away. Right? He's just this beautiful man of faith, man of the word, just man of prayer. But his mind started to slip. He couldn't do these things that he used to do. He couldn't think the way that he used to think. Right? He couldn't, it seemed, relate to God and speak to God and walk with God in the same way. And the only comfort that we had leading up to his passing right, is not his, his cognitive ability to hold on to God. It was God holding on to him. Right? We knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that because he belonged to Jesus, God was holding on to him. Sometimes that is literally all we have, and the promise of Jesus is that is literally all that we need. Nothing will snatch them out of my hand. Nothing is going to snatch you away from the grip of Jesus. It's a beautiful promise. In verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for good works that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So it's clear again, clear as day to these Jews, that Jesus is claiming to be God. Verse 30, when he makes that statement, I and the Father are one. He is claiming with his words to be God. That's why they try to grab him, they try to stone him, they try to kill him. And the reason, look at this statement, being a man, because you being a man make yourself God. Just the irony of this statement, right? They're looking Jesus in the face and saying, we're about to stone you and try to kill you because you are just a man claiming to be God. When in reality, they are looking at God who became a man. Right? They have the audacity, we have the audacity to put God on trial. Right To look Jesus in the face and say, you're just a man pretending to be God. When in reality, they are looking in the face of the God who breathed all of creation into existence, who spoke it into existence, who gives it life and sustains life, and who actually loves his people and loves his world and loves his creation so desperately, so deeply that he was willing to humble himself and empty himself and put on flesh and become a man and walk among us for the good of mankind to live perfectly for us, to die for us, to rescue us, and to save us. God became a man. And they look Jesus in the face and say, you are a man who is saying that you're God. But the reality is that this shows us something so beautiful about the heart of God, right? That even in the midst of us pushing him away and, and just putting him on trial and saying, dance for me, Jesus, jump through hoops for me, Jesus, show me who you are. He is so patient and so kind with us. Right? So patient, so loving. That is the heart of God. That he's willing to, to come to his people who rejected him. To live amongst them and to do what he needed to do, even to the point of death, to save them. And then Jesus answered them, verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken 
Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Right, so this is a complicated uh, little thing here with the gods with a little g. Basically what Jesus is doing is he's quoting Psalm 82, which talks about uh, this instance where God is, is appointing princes. So princes who are royalty, and he's calling them gods with a little g. So he's saying these princes are gods. He's given, God has given the word to them. He's given them some jurisdiction, some people, and some land to rule over. And Jesus here is saying, the word of God came to those princes, and I called them gods with a little g. And so how are you going to look me in the face, who actually is God, come down to you, consecrated, anointed, set apart for this task? You're going to look me in the face and call me a blasphemer for saying that I am the son of God. Again, it's just the audacity of these people and the beautiful patience of Jesus. And I just want to narrow in on this statement. Did you catch it? In verse 35, Jesus says, And the scripture cannot be broken. And the scripture cannot be broken, right? It's really popular right now to say, Hey, I'll take Jesus, right? I want to believe in Jesus. I want to believe in God. But I, let's just leave the scriptures behind, right? We don't need the Bible anymore. The Bible's outdated. The Bible is not authoritative. It's not inerrant. There's all kinds of errors and wonky stuff in there. So I'll take Jesus. I still want Jesus, but I don't want the Bible. I don't have to take the Bible seriously. It doesn't need to be the authority in my life. And I just want to point out really simply that Jesus said the scripture cannot be broken, right? Jesus believed fully in the authority and the inerrancy and the perfection of God's word, of the Old Testament scriptures, Right? And so there are so many reasons historically to believe that this is a reliable document, that this is the reliable spirit-breathed word of God. But I just want to say my favorite reason is that Jesus trusted this. Right? If you look at the life of Jesus, right, he quoted directly or referenced directly from every book of the Pentateuch. Right, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. He quoted the Psalms directly. He quoted uh, Micah. He quoted Isaiah. He quoted Jeremiah. He quoted Hosea. He quoted, I think, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Malachi. This is why people have notes when they preach, because they could just look. I'm trying to remember. But Jesus quoted all these books, right? And if you remember when, when Satan brings him out into the wilderness and tempts him, what does Jesus do? He quotes scripture. He says time and time after again when he's challenged, he says, it is written, right? Jesus trusted this book. Because he knows he is God and he knows that God, the Father and God, the Spirit wrote this book. Right? We can have confidence. Let's stand on the promise of Jesus. Let's trust the word as Jesus trusted the word. The scripture cannot be broken. And then verse 37 and 38. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Right? So Jesus has told these people, he's told us who he is by his words. He has claimed to be God, but then they don't believe him. And he says, even if you don't believe me, you don't believe what I've said to you, believe the works. Believe my life. Believe the things that I did. And he's talking specifically when he says works, he's talking specifically about his miracles. Right, the things that he did in his time on earth. And in all of the gospel accounts together, we have uh, just over 30 accounts of Jesus performing miracles. Right, we have three different categories. Basically, we have nature miracles, which are Jesus walking on water, Jesus uh, multiplying the bread and the fishes. Um, and then we have uh, healing 
miracles where Jesus healed blind people. He brought people back to life. He healed crippled people. And we have deliverance miracles where Jesus cast out demons and dark spirits from people. And there's not enough time here to go into just the, the rational defense of the miracles of Jesus. But even if you read up on it, even the most liberal uh, and atheistic and skeptical scholars read the accounts of Jesus' miracles and they go, Without a doubt, beyond any shadow of a doubt, if we're being intellectually honest, Jesus was at least a man who possessed supernatural powers and did mighty works that cannot be explained by natural means. And Jesus is saying, look at these works that I did. If you don't believe my words, look at the works. And so we need to understand what was actually going on in the miracles of Jesus. The first thing is that Jesus' works prove that he is God. Right, so we read in John, if you have the scripture up there, I don't have it in my notes. That's okay. Do we have that text? That's all right. But basically, John at the end, in chapter 20, I believe it is, he claims that many more works were done by Jesus, but these ones are written in his gospel in order that we may see and believe and in believing in Jesus have life. Right, and so the first thing is Jesus' works prove that he is God. Right, and so look at the things that he did. John bases his case off of seven, uh, he calls them signs, sign miracles that he did, right? So he, uh, he walks on water, he turns the water into wine, uh, he heals the official's son who is sick simply by speaking a word, right? He uh, walks on water, he feeds the 5,000 people, he heals the blind man in chapter 9, and he's going to heal, uh, bring Lazarus back from the dead in the next chapter. And so what was he doing when he performed these miracles? Right? Jesus was showing us that he is backing up his claims that he already made that he is God by doing these things that only God can do. Right? Only God with the power of God who has control of the elements of the universe could take stale water, change its elemental makeup, and turn it into wine. Right? Only God who is God over the seas and the wind and the waves could walk on the surface of water because he's the one who invented water. Right? Only Jesus could multiply and, and the bread and the fish because he is the one who invented bread and fish. Right? Jesus can heal a crippled man. He can heal a blind man because God is the one who knit the body together in the womb. Right? Jesus can just speak a word and tell Lazarus, who's dead in the tomb, to get up and live because only God is the author of life. And Jesus is showing us that. Right? He did what only God can do. His works show that he is God, and these are given to us to create faith in us and to strengthen faith in us. But more than that, Jesus' works are signs of renewal. Right? So this is so beautiful. More than just healing the immediate needs of the people that Jesus healed, he was actually doing something way bigger. Because if you think about it, just over 30 miracles that we have accounts of, if Jesus was trying to do something crazy and, and heal everybody, right, by doing the healings and the miracles that he did and feeding hungry people, he barely made a dent, right, just over 30. We'd go like, yeah, that's pretty good, but just over 30? Like, come on, you could do better, Jesus, right? The thing is, it wasn't about the actual miracles themselves, right? That's why John calls them signs, right? Because like the big yellow sign that says sharks ahead at the beach, the sign is not actually about the sign itself. That's the nature of a sign. It is pointing us to a deeper and greater reality that lies ahead, right? And that is exactly what Jesus was doing. Jesus, in the miracles, in the healings, in the feeding, 
healing the blind man, healing the crippled man. Jesus was showing us little glimpses of what he came to do and is ultimately going to do and bring to completion at the end of time. Right? Every miracle, every healing, Jesus is showing us a little glimpse of heaven crashing in to earth. What he is ultimately bringing to fulfillment, that there will be a new heaven, a new earth, a new creation where there will be no crippled people. There will be no blind eyes. There will be no hunger. There will be no pain, no suffering, no tears. Just walking in perfect peace, perfect shalom in the presence of the God of the universe. Jesus, every miracle that he performed, he was showing us a glimpse of this. And giving us a longing, giving us a hope for what is ultimately to come. And just saying to us, I am the God of renewal. I'm the God who Jesus walked around and everything that he touched, everything that he did was renewed. It was given life. It was healed. It was brought back to life. And Jesus was showing us, it was a sign pointing to the greater reality that this is ultimately what he came to do, that he's the God who came to bring us renewal, the God who looks at our broken world, the world that he loves, right, that has fallen into sin, that's been so marred by sin and darkness and brokenness. We feel that right now, right? Like our souls are just reeling because we know that something is not right. Every miracle, every sign was Jesus saying, I am God and the pain that you feel about the world that you live in, trust me, my heart breaks even more than yours does about that. And I actually came to do something about it. Every miracle is a little sign of renewal. And this is so beautiful. This is so cool. Jesus is making this statement saying, look at my works, look at my signs, that I'm the God of renewal. He makes this statement standing in the temple colonnade during the feast where the Jews were celebrating the renewal of the temple. Right? They were celebrating that the presence of God is back in the temple. We can go to the temple. We can worship. We can do sacrifice. We can be one with God in the temple. And this is Jesus standing in that temple saying, you are celebrating the renewal of the temple because you think the presence of God is there. But no, guys, I came to do something new. And now the presence of God is no longer in a building of brick and mortar. The presence of God is in me. I'm the new temple. The people of God are the new temple. And no longer do you have to go to the temple to find the presence of God. The presence of God is in Jesus and Jesus alone. The presence of God is renewal and the presence of God is not confined to a building. Right? It's not confined to ritual sacrifice, to purification laws, to sacrificing animals on the altar. Jesus is saying, I came to bring a new way of relating to God. No longer is it through ritual and religion and sacrifice. Religion has given way to relationship. Now it is no longer through the temple. It is through relationship with Jesus. It's not about religious ceremony. It's about a relationship with the living God and that is through Jesus alone. You don't need a renewal of the temple. You need a renewal of your soul. You need a renewal of your life. Right? That is what Jesus came to give us. That's what he came to say to these people. He came to say to us, The plan of God is to fill his world with his presence, to bring renewal to his people, to bring his presence of renewal to the ends of the earth. Let's look at the last couple verses here. Verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. John did no sign. So John the Baptist, he didn't do any miracles. 
But what did he say about Jesus? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of the universe, and he came to know you. He came to take away your sins. He came to renew you. That every miracle that Jesus performed, every sign, all culminated in the one ultimate sign, that the God of the universe who put on human flesh would walk to a Roman cross and be crucified and lay down his life for the sins of the world, and that he would not stay dead in the tomb, but that like we sang this morning, his buried body began to breathe. And out of the darkness, like a roaring lion, Jesus comes out and he comes back to life. We read last week in our passage that he and he alone has the authority to lay down his life and to take it back up again. He validated everything that he ever said. He fulfilled every prophecy. He claimed to be God and then he backed it up by coming and bringing renewal to individuals and to the world that he's going to bring to completion And he backed it up by going to the cross for every single one of us to die for our sins and then to defeat death by raising to life by the power of God. And these people who see Jesus, they experience Jesus, they go, everything that John the Baptist said about this Jesus is true. That he really is the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Jesus came to renew and fill the earth with his presence and it starts with his people in Crossage, I just I feel I just hear the, the voice of God, I think, speaking to us through this text. The Spirit of God, the presence of God is not confined to a building. It's not confined to religion. It's not confined to ritual. I'm so stoked that we are able to come back after all the COVID stuff, after all the just the annoying shutdowns and the things that we had to deal with. I'm so glad we can gather here again and I hope that you come back here every week to worship and to be with the people of God. But the presence of God is not contained to a sticky old movie theater. Right? Just like it wasn't contained in a temple. The presence of God and the spirit of God is in your car. It's in your home. It's in your family. It's in your workplace. He is there. And he wants to bring renewal to those spaces. He wants to bring renewal to the spaces of your life, the places that you go, but it starts with us. Right? We just went through a season of breakdown. We just went through a season that was, that was hard for the church, probably for you individually. Right? But at the bottom, rock bottom of every single breakdown is the possibility for a renewal. Right? And I think what God wants to do is he wants to fill us again, his faithful people. He wants to fill us again with his spirit, fresh, with his presence, And he's looking for people who are willing to buy in, people who are willing to commit, people who are willing to not be content with with just boring religion, to not be content with just going through the motions. Right? I can't I can't stomach it. I can't do it. I can't do just lifeless Bible reading. I need the power of God and the Spirit of God and the voice of God, right? I can't do lifeless singing of songs. We're not just doing Christian karaoke when we sing these songs, right? We need the presence of God and the power of God. I can't go and do life and work and relationship and marriage and all these things without the presence and the spirit and the power of God. We need his presence. His presence is in Jesus alone. And so as we move into a time of communion, I just want to ask you guys, what is keeping you from that? What is keeping you from contending, from getting back on your knees again? How's your soul? How's your heart? How's your spiritual life? Is it stale? Are you tired Is it lifeless? It's not temple worship anymore. It's the presence of God. We need the touch of renewal, the touch of Jesus, his spirit 
on us. And just like the temple, the Jerusalem temple, it had to be cleared out of idols. It had to be cleared out of things that we worship, things that our hearts hold on to and, and compete and fight for the one true place that God needs to sit in, in our heart. So as we take communion, I just want to welcome the band up here again to play communion servers. If you don't mind coming up, but can we reflect on this, guys? What are the idols of your heart that need to go? What are the things, the practices that you've been neglecting, maybe the things that have turned lifeless, that have just turned into into ceremony, have just turned into going through the motions? Where do you need the presence and the renewing touch, the spirit of God again? Will you contend for it? When distraction sets in, will you fight for it? When busyness sets in, will you fight for it? We need the touch. We need the renewal of God. We need his presence in us, filling us, sending us out. The presence of God is not contained to a temple. He's doing something. He's renewing his creation. And so I'm just going to turn to these words of institution that we have for communion as we take the elements and reflect on this. From 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Of me. So this is what we're celebrating this morning, guys. The new covenant of my blood, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. Jesus came to do something new. That's why he turned water into wine. He looked at the stale water pots that were for ritual hand washing to be clean before God, and he turned it into wine. He said, I'm doing a new thing. It's no longer through ritual. The only way to be washed clean before God, the only way to be renewed and made right before God is by the blood that I'm going to pour out on the cross for you. I'm going to turn the stale waters of religiosity into the vibrant, colorful, delicious, vibrant, life-giving wine. That's what is offered to us. And so as you take the cup, as you eat the bread, just reflect on that reality that when he gave his life on the cross, This cool thing happened where the the temple curtain was torn in two. And it was to symbolize that there's no more division between the Holy of Holies. There's no division between the presence of God and his people now. We can approach him through Jesus. We can go to him for healing. Go to him for renewal. Go to him to be filled. What do you need this morning? Go to him to be filled. What do you need to lay at his feet and let go of this morning? Go to him for forgiveness. If you need to trust him and put your faith in him for the first time this morning and have your life changed and transformed and forgiven and renewed, make that decision. Do that this morning. But as we sing, as we take the elements, as we reflect, I just encourage you to be in the presence of God. Seek the face of God. Ask him to fill you again. He wants to do it. Let me just pray. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Jesus, thank you that you didn't just claim to be God, you showed that you truly are God by your mighty works of power. 
by the fact that you put on flesh and you came to us, your broken people, to renew us and restore us. And Lord, we need you. Our hearts need you. Our souls need you. We long for you, Jesus. Wherever we are this morning, Lord, fill us again with your holy fire, with your passion. Forgive us, Lord, for our sin. Fill us with new life. We want to hear your voice. We want to walk with you more closely, God. We don't want dry, dead religion. We want life with you, full and abundant. Thank you that you died to give us this life, Lord. Fill us with your spirit again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.